This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, I'm Matt Ryan, the Policy Director and host of the UCSB Script to Screen series. Script to Screen examines a screenplay from the perspectives of writers, directors, and actors. Tonight's a special night. It's our 25th anniversary show and our fifth season premiere. It all started long ago where I brought the Legally Blonde writers to the Pollock Theater who broke down the screenplay and hosted the Bend and Snap Dance Contest. A little time after, we did Back to the Future where we got the DeLorean out front and had Doc Brown and Bob Gale, the screenwriter, join us for a Q&A after screening the film with them. A few years ago, a week before the Oscars, uh, we had the honor of having John Ridley, the soon-to-be Oscar-winning screenwriter of 12 Years a Slave. Not sure which was more emotionally moving, the movie or his personal journey writing the script. But tonight we wanted a special beloved movie for our anniversary show. So we landed on American Beauty, a very powerful script that makes you look closer each time and discover new emotions which he's viewing. So please, welcome to the Pollock Theater stage, the Oscar-winning screenwriter, Alan Ball. Uh, so, let's talk about it. I mean, you and I talked a little in the green room. Uh, what was it like for you seeing it with a full house audience who most of them never actually experienced it in a movie theater? It was fantastic. I, I, I haven't seen it in five years. Um, so, it was kind of, you know, and it's been, it's, this is the 15th year anniversary, right? Yeah, when, when of the Oscar, you the 15th anniversary of your yeah, Oscar. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So, I... It, uh, I mean, I love it. I love I, I, when it was out. When it first came out in theaters, I used to sneak around and go to movie theaters and sit in the back, just because I wanted to see how audiences respond to, responded to it. And it was it was great. It's, it's always very gratifying when you feel like people get it on the you know on the level that you you kind of wanted them to. It was funny. I was watching some of the audience here. We had a few students. I will not point you out. I promise that were covering their eyes in the awkward scene, like it was a scary movie, and they were peeking around it. <laughs> I heard two students say, I knew it was him. He was a killer. <laughs> um, so it's great. So let's go a little back to the origins. Uh, a lot of writers delve into their own personal backstories mm-hmm. to write a film. Mm-hmm. So let, let me ask you, have you really ever considered throwing in the Hollywood talent and working in a fast food joint? Well, I did work in a fast food <laughs> joint, so I feel like I've done that. I don't need to do that again. Um, <clears throat> I mean, it, there's not that much that's autobiographical. I, that I can see. I mean, I'm sure there's probably stuff that I'm unaware of because I'm in denial. As Ricky says, never <laughs> underestimate the power of, de- of denial. Um, my mom was uh, went through a big depression, so I think Alice and Janney's um, character, there was some of that in that. Uh, I wrote this when I was still working as a sitcom writer on the show Sybil. Um, and I think maybe there's a little bit of Sybil Shepherd in Annette Benning's character. Um, I think there's probably a lot of me and Lester because what, what happened is I was, a, I was a playwright living in New York and I worked with a bunch of friends of mine from college in a theater company. We used to do shows in basements and nobody ever made any money. You know, we do a show in a basement on a Thursday night at 11, and sometimes there were more people on stage than there were in the audience. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but it was... It was a great time. It was a great time in my life. I was really happy. Um, and then I got an offer to come out to Los Angeles and, and work on uh, sitcoms. And I spent four years writing sitcoms. And it was um, not a particularly artistic, artistically gratifying experience. Um, and I just was, I, I felt so disconnected from what had always been a labor of love for me, you know, uh, a sort of organic process as a writer as opposed to becoming a, a writer for hire and, and basically churning out 30 minutes every week of people in designer clothes trading insults in a way that hopefully is funny, in a way that hopefully people who are not actors can actually sort of become stars. They just have to sort of stand there and say the lines, and everybody around them works to make them look good. Um, and so I, I, I wrote this script on spec, um, just because I had to write something I cared about, and it's—I don't think it's a—I don't think it's a coincidence that Lester is a writer, mm. and he's sort of lost his passion. 
and in the course of this movie, he, he reconnects with his own passion for living, because that's kind of what was happening to me as I wrote it, is I was sort of reconnecting to whatever passion I felt like I had lost as a writer. So... So let's go a little back to the character setup. I mean, in really in the first two minutes of the movie, you set up Lester's lost. Mm-hmm. He's going to die. Mm-hmm. His marriage is in trouble. Caroline, his mm-hmm. estranged relationship with Jane. Mm-hmm. And I love the line, I didn't always feel this way sedated, but there's always the chance to get it all back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk about it. So did you always know where Lester was in the past and in the present, or did you kind of discover both those Lesters through multiple drafts? I think, you know what, I actually started working on this back when I was living in New York, and I started writing it as a play. And um, it sort of didn't go anywhere because I don't think it's a play. I think it's a movie. And then years later, uh, I had just, my agent, had, who I'd been with, um, was leaving the business, and I started meeting new agents. And I, and I had written a screenplay based on my, a play that I wrote that was sort of my writing sample. And so <clears throat> I met these agents, and, and this one agent said, I think you're a really good writer, but you need to, be, you need to write something new. You need, we need to reintroduce you to the whatever, the, the Hollywood community. Um, and I, uh, so I pitched three ideas, two of which were pretty standard romantic comedies, and one, was which American, was one of which was American Beauty, which, as you can imagine, was kind of hard to pitch in, like, one sentence. <laughs> <laughs> and I was <clears throat> sitting there, and I was going... You know, and then there's this kid next door, and he's got a video camera, and he, people think he's crazy, and maybe he is crazy, but maybe he's smarter than everybody else, and then his father, you know, <laughs> and, and, uh, and afterwards, he said, well, that's the one you should write, and I said, why? I'm surprised. I thought you'd pick one of these other ones, because these, it seems like those would sell, and he said, well, that's clearly the one that you have the most passion for. It was the best piece of advice I ever got in my life, um, and so I... I went off and wrote it. It took me about eight months. Now, I'd worked on it a lot before, so the characters were in my head already. Um, in terms of... I'm sorry, what was the original Well, Lester. Like, no, because remember, like, he, in Lester, he had his childhood where he was happy and the, mm-hmm. the smoking. So did you have an idea where he was in the past and you know, <clears throat> what he lost, or you kind of discovered some of Lester's... You know what? Yeah. I'm I, uh, screenwriting professors will probably hate me because I never outline. I don't. I for me, it has to be a, a a journey of discovery, and so I have tons of stuff I've started that I can't finish because it just runs out of whatever. But, um, I I had a sense of who he was, uh, but it was in the writing of the script that it became clear to me. You know, and there was in my original script there was a framing device where the kids had, um, there was this big uh, showy trial um, going on, and, and, and Jane and Ricky were on trial for his murder, and because the colonel had, um, had sort of arranged it so that they would look guilty, and then, uh, and then you, the whole movie happened, and then you saw that it wasn't them. I think the reason for that was because when I was working in sitcoms, the sitcoms I worked on, we would start off each episode with the question, what is the moment of shit in this episode? <laughs> and the moment of shit was always like a moment where, you know, somebody learned something or somebody, you know, realized they'd been wrong and people hugged and it was, you know, that moment of shit that, you know, a lot of sitcoms still have even. And I think, <clears throat> for me, the process of writing this script was so liberating because I didn't have to have a moment of shit. And... I was uh, a lot of anger just because I hated my job and I hated sort of what I had become. Um, a lot of anger was, was fueling this. So I, I, that whole framing device of the kids went to jail and it, it, um, I think it was coming from a place of like, yeah, there's no moment. Of and you know what? The kids go to jail and there's no justice and life sucks. <laughs> and and <clears throat> we shot that, actually. We shot all that stuff, but... Uh, Luckily, Sam, you know, in editing, sort of took it out. Uh. I was upset for about a day. 
And then I realized it's much better without it because then it would have been a real downer. And, you know, it's like, it's like, and there was you. a little downer at the end. Well, yeah, yeah but little, this was yeah. like rubbing salt into the wound. I got to talk a little bit about one of the early scenes and more about Lester's coverage. I love the moment where Lester is trying to reconnect with Jane in the kitchen. Yes. There's that brief hope. That you know, maybe they can fix it. Did you did, when you when you view it? Do you view it as all hope is lost, or there was a chance? No, I think he's trying, and I think she's. I mean, she's got a point. It's like you barely even said anything to me for months, and now you're going to be my best friend. Doesn't work that way. But I think he. I think I think fundamentally he's a good man, and he wants to. Um, he. He wants to find his way back to a life that's meaningful, and uh, he wants to sort of reconnect with her. Um, but, but I love his choice of words. He says, like, I'm sorry I haven't been more available, <laughs> which is kind of a weird way to say it. <laughs> but at least he was trying. Yeah, he yeah, was he trying. He was definitely trying. And, uh, and I also I found it very interesting Jane, though. Uh, did you always kind of zero inch her actually made insecurities, obviously, her looks? And the breast augmentation. Was mm-hmm. that always something in your mind? This is what's going to be her, you know, arc and story? Or does that kind of also... Yeah, work? well, I mean, it was the... I mean, when I wrote the script, it was, it, you know, it was that. It was like the, the idea of teenage girls saving, you know, a teenage girl saving money for breast augmentation. There's something so weird and wrong. And, uh, and, 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 you know, it's just like I have to be physically perfect to be worth, to, to be worthwhile as a human being. And... And I think a lot of what I was, I was trying to sort of uh, play around with in the movie was the, the ideas of success and the ideas of, of what makes us a, a, a successful person, what makes one have a successful life. Um, and if you're that girl in high school who your best friend is, is the pretty girl... Of course, you know, unless you're incredibly strong. In in that case, I don't think you would be like the sidekick to the pretty girl. Um, You're looking for ways to feel good about yourself. And unfortunately, we live in a culture that I think tells us, you know, a lot of the ways to feel good about ourselves are really empty. Angela is actually a very fascinating character for me. I I assume it was difficult to write because you have to make her real insecure. Obviously, she's insecure. Mm -hmm. You know, she's, you know, beautiful. But she's also a lot of her characters defined of how Lens Lester sees through sees her. Yeah. So how did you was that difficult striking a balance between that, making a real but also making part of Lester's fantasy and Well, I think it I think it works both ways. I mean I think, you know, her thing is that she knows that men look at her and they they objectify her and they want her and that gives her a sense of power that she obviously doesn't have anywhere else in her life. And so, of course, she's going to go there because it feels good. You know, she's not manipulative. She's not being a bitch. She just wants to feel good about herself, just like everybody else. That made it so much more real to me. I mean, she was fascinating and real. Uh, okay, I've got to jump to the Caroline scene. Which one? The I Will Sell the House. Oh, yeah. Hysterical, funny, uh, and then the most, and finally seeing vulnerability. And you kind of slapped us audience. We had hope for her. Then she slaps her back to reality. When she's slapping herself? Yeah. It's it just that scene was so powerful. How did that kind of evolve? Because Minette was amazing in that so scene. So good. It was so, it was so nice to watch it again because it just, remind, it just reminds me of how amazing all those performances are. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, that, that beating yourself up and slapping yourself, that's learned behavior. Somebody taught her that. People don't just out of the blue start slapping themselves and call them, calling themselves weak and baby. That's something, that's an idea that got put in their mind at an early age. And I wanted to understand why she's so... I wanted to have one moment where you saw what was underneath that, that you know, iron-willed control of everything looking perfect and everything looking like, I, you know, I'm, I'm all together. You know, the gardening gloves match the clogs. And, and, and that I'm a, I'm a strong and successful human being because I have mastered it. I have mastered the, the image, which really has nothing to do with it, with being an authentic human being, I think. 
And really, I mean, that, and basically that was a sympathetic scene where we actually fell in love with her in a way. Like we would have, if without that, I think the rest of the movie, we never would have been rooting for her or Yeah, exactly. Understood she just her. comes off as like, uh, you know, obnoxious. Uh, <laughs> I did like the other family, uh, of course, the Fitzes. It's interesting because they were shot the same way, like the dinner scene <clears throat> in some ways. But right. obviously, how did you juxtapose the two families? Because they are obviously very different and much more They're, violent. <laughs> well, and just deeply, deeply dysfunctional. You know, dysfunctional is a word that gets bandied around a lot. I mean, I don't think the Burnhams are, are necessarily horribly dysfunctional. They're neurotic and they're, you know, and the adults are kind of irresponsible, but nobody's abusing anybody, you know. Um, but the, the fits, that is, a, that is a repressed, repressed, repressed household. And Alice and Janie did such a wonderful job with... So you didn't hard. give a lot of lines of dialogue, right. but great nonverbal dialogue for right. her. Um, so I love that moment when they're, make, they're having breakfast and the doorbell rings and they all kind of look terrified. Because <laughs> <laughs> a family like that, you know, they don't want... They stay in... They don't want anybody to see because on some level they know how deeply, deeply... And of course, the out and the the people that knock at the door are the worst to break into that family (laughs) because the Fitzes, because Colonel Fitz has some issues. Uh, uh, Which we'll get in a second, but I really, there's one character in the movie that's not actually a character, but I think he is the cinematographer Conrad Hall. Yes. Uh, What did he really, for you, added to your script, bringing your script to life? Well, I mean, first of all, he, he. it's just so beautiful, and it's it's all it's done very simply. There's, I mean, yeah, there's some some moments that are like, hey, look at this visual, like when she's on the ceiling and and when she opens her and the, you know, um, but he was able to make it really stylized and beautiful and keep it grounded. You know what I mean? And you always your eye is always where it needs to be, um, and he's he he was just such a an amazingly gentle soul who really, really loved what he did. Um, yeah, it was my first experience. I didn't go to film school. I went to theater school. And so I had been working on sitcoms for four years, having transitioned out of being a playwright in New York to being a staff writer on a sitcom. So this was my first experience with a single camera. Uh, and one of my conditions when we were selling the script is like, I want to be on set every day um, just because I want to watch. And so a lot of it, I, I didn't, I, you know, at that time, I didn't know what they were doing or what they were setting up, but then I would see it on the monitor. And I was, you know, I, I had a couple of notes occasionally about dialogue, about, you know, sometimes actors would improvise Lines or paraphrase lines, and once or twice I was like, "No, can you say it exactly the way it's written?" Because it's important. But for the most part, I just sat there and watched, you know, and soaked it up because it was all so new to me. And as I had to work with, was it more? Uh, did Sam Mendes come to you sometimes, the director, and saying, "Ooh, can we change this a little?" Or what do you think? Sam and, and I spent. A, we, I think we had a two-week rehearsal process, but prior to that, we spent a lot of time together going over the script. He had me read the entire script and play all the characters while he listened because he wanted to hear, I guess, how the dialogue sounded in my head when I wrote it. Um, and I was just very, I, I was very, very fortunate in that the movie he wanted to make and the movie I wanted to make were the same movie because before, before they settled on him as director, I would hear you know these other directors they were talking about, and other directors would have these ideas that just didn't really have anything to do with this movie. Like one of them wanted R- Ricky to take these like spy cameras and put them all in Jane's house and be constantly, you know, constant surveillance of, of the Burnhams. And I'm like, well, that's a different movie. What you know? <laughs> Why don't you go write that one and make it yourself? But. Um, and I lucked out because, you know, writers are not the most powerful people in a movie. Um, and I lucked out in that everybody sort of, we all wanted to make the same movie that, that I had written. 
And that's not always what happens. And if everybody's in sync, that's when you make magic. Yeah. I mean, it goes, then it feeds down the cinematographer, the sound department, the cast. And, yeah. Uh, all and the way down Sam the was, I mean, just watching him work, he was so, so smart. And so, I mean, it's amazing that's the first movie he ever directed. Yeah. You know? <laughs> uh, that always fascinates me. He's also directed Road to Perdition. You guys should see that. Jarhead. Jarhead. It's like he's a very, very talented director and worked with Conrad Hall in his last movie, Road to Perdition. Um, so let's talk about, I love Ricky and Lester's relationship. Yeah. It starts with them smoking pot. Yes. Uh, Ricky inspires Lester to quit in a lot of ways. And, of course, the drug dealing scene, you mentioned the never underestimate the power of denial, which is my favorite line of the movie. Right. Uh, how did you see their relationship? Did you get a, you always had a handle of it? It was like, oh, wow, this is, they're interesting together. Well, Lester's at a point in his life where he's real, I mean, he's in full-blown midlife crisis. Um, he's like, how the hell did I get here in this life, living in this house with these two women who hate me? I hate myself. I'm not doing anything I care about. And so in a way, Ricky's a bit of a role model for him because Ricky, now granted, Ricky's a drug dealer and, uh, and, you know, he may not be Eagle Scout of the month, but he is a, he is a guy who lives his life the way he wants to. And he, he, he takes control and he, it's his life, you know, even though his situation is horrible, they put him in a, in a, um, mental institution and and uh his father is so terribly abusive um he is a very very strong soul and i think he is a bit of a uh he becomes a bit of a role model for lester and it's like you know you only get one life as far as we know why live it for other people why not just be authentic and live it for yourself uh, he does have one thing he can't do, though, in that scene with the car with his dad, when his dad uses those horrible homophobic slurs. Right. He just is not ready to stand up. Oh, and, no. Uh, no, he does that on purpose, just to shut his father up, uh, I think. Because he's got his book, and he's, just, he's bookkeeping all the money you know, from his, his, his drug dealing, and, the, and he realizes... Oh, he's waiting for a response. I'll say exactly what he wants to hear, so he'll just shut up. And so it's his it. way of controlling the situation as yeah. best as possible. Yeah. Uh, obviously, that falls apart a little. He can't always control Dad. No. Nope. <laughs> uh, which, which also makes Dad a stronger character, too, because right. they're battling each other. Um, but uh, obviously, we had that amazing opening d- dance sequence yes. with Lester <laughs> falls in love Choreographed with Choreographed by Paula Abdul, actually. <laughs> That must have been a little tricky to shoot, and the way it, crafting it because obviously it sets up everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how how did that work? Did they do the set or it was how a whole did you day? Do it? Whole day? Yeah, I think we spent two days in the gym, and one day was just the um, the dance sequence. And you know it was difficult because you have the whole you know all the extras, and and Kevin was there surrounded by people, and then cut and then like you have to herd everybody out so you get that one shot of him in the in the bleachers alone and uh but uh i can't remember if that was storyboarded or not i don't think it was i think they were just going for because it's you know but that was a day that was a whole day and obviously the cinema uh, conrad hall had to have a lot of influence on that one because in the script is you know i'm assuming you you spelled it out but not mm-hmm. to the level of yeah I did. I think I did write that all of a sudden he was the only one in the stands and she was the only one on the floor. But in terms of you know the sort of weird jump cutty and how they were, I didn't. I didn't write any of that. And I love the follow up scene, of course. Yes. He meets her. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So is that right? Wait. We have a car. <laughs> He's so funny. Oh my god, he was so funny. <laughs> Well, in some ways, that's some of your sitcom background did help because it allowed, even though you're doing a dramatic scene, perhaps he did a lot of improv in that oh, scene. Really? Yeah. So I, I would love to take credit, take credit. for that, but I can't. <laughs> I oh, can't. oh, it's good. You yeah. Have a Okay, so a little thing. Obviously, we talked about the camera. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I'm, gonna, I'm sorry. I'm going to say it's a lot of my favorite scenes. Uh, the scene where Jane exposes herself to Ricky, mm-hmm. which to me was one of the most special scenes because in Conrad Hall in your script. It doesn't focus on her breasts. It doesn't focus on her nudity. It focuses on her eyes. Yep. So how was it for you, like, doing a scene where it wasn't about sexuality? It was about almost revealing yourself naked in an emotional way. Well, that had sort of been my intent for the scene. And, and, and I think even in the scene, 
in the script, I talk about her eyes, not necessarily a close on her eyes or something, but like, you know, the, the, how vulnerable she's making herself at that moment. And she's sort of like saying this, you know, here I am, you know, and, uh, I mean, they, you know, Sam and Conrad and everybody was so good. I just basically sat there <laughs> and watched the monitor and said, wow, that's really great. You guys. Well, it's interesting, because, but, but as you point out, you wanted that uh, a bad director, a bad cinematographer could have ruined that shot. Mm, I mean, it totally. would have immediately, if it went on her breast, it would have been, you know, showed him how he felt about it. Totally. Could have ruined the shot. So totally. this is where I guess for uh, how many aspiring screenwriters in the audience? This, this stuff is important. You know, this is, uh... All right. So let's see. Oh, of course, the plastic bag. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, is that really the most thing you get asked about? Uh, I get asked a lot that? about that. Um, I actually, you know, I, I lived in New York for about eight years before I came out here. And one day I had gone to uh, brunch with some friends and we had a couple of Bloody Marys. And I was walking home to Brooklyn and it was, a, it was, a, it was kind of a beautiful day. It was overcast. And, I, and, and so rather than taking the train, I walked. And I was walking through the plaza um, at the World Trade Center. This is before it was, you know, attacked. And there was a plastic bag that came out of nowhere. And it literally circled me like 15 times. And I guess I was just drunk enough to go like, wow. <laughs> wow you know, I'm in the presence of something intensely spiritual. And I still kind of believe I was. Or maybe I was just drunk. I don't know. Um, and so then, you know, like I said, writing the script for me is a little bit of a journey of discovery. And so I'm here in this scene, and Ricky goes, you want to see the most beautiful thing I ever filmed? And she's like, yeah. And then I thought, okay, what is that going to be? And I just, you know, thought about my own experience. And, and that was a moment that, that really stuck with me. Um, and so put it in. And then to shoot it, they were, had a bunch of guys standing off, off camera with... Leaf dryer. Uh, yeah, leaf blowers. And, you know, always trying to keep it from going out of frame. It was, uh, <clears throat> it was pretty funny. Uh, okay, so Lester, you gave us another moment of hope that was so brilliant. Lester and Caroline almost reconnect. They almost mm. make love again. They almost mm. find it. And you pull it out from under us. Mm-hmm. Did you? Did you have a time having to balance that between that the hope and that the, came the out of the rehearsal process, ah. um, and that was actually you know as we were sitting around talking, I think it was probably Sam who said, "I wish we'd have a moment where they almost come together again." And I thought, well, yeah, that's a, that's a really good note. So, so I went home and wrote it and gave it to him the next day. It's one of the. It's actually one of the best scenes together. Those two of them really so good. Yeah. That, yeah. Um, but conversely, how fun was it to write the uh, you know the busted scene at the fast food joint when he catches her? Oh, so much fun! <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah. It was a, uh, and I, I, of course, the great line: "You're so busted." You are so busted. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Once once Lester sort of gets his mojo back, and he was start standing up to everybody. All of those scenes were really fun to write because I I was getting to through him articulate what I couldn't do in this in my stupid sitcom job because I would love love to walk up to Civil Shepherd and say like something horrible, <laughs> but <clears throat> I couldn't. So. So he got to say all those things. <laughs> yes, we had some. Uh, we had Curtis Armstrong from Risky Business, who yeah. worked with uh, Civil whose Shepherd. wife I worked with on Civil Shepherd. Oh, really? Civil yeah. Show. yeah. He Elaine. had some interesting stories about working on Moonlighting with Bruce Willis and Civil Shepherd. Yeah, that's uh, a that's a, <laughs> that's a hate sandwich right there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So of course, I, I felt one of the most interesting twists was the Act Two going to Act Three. This is the, you know, the first, you know, every day is the next, first day of your life except the day you die. Mm-hmm. Did you always have that kind of in mind that you're going to divulge to the audience that, you know, prior that he's going to die today or? No, I mean, I knew, I knew that the movie was taking place. It was sort of him remembering the events leading up to his death, but that particular line just felt right, you know, when I was, when I was doing that when I was writing that scene. Um, a lot of people were like, 
uh, when the movie first came out, a lot of people were saying, well, how did you ever think of having a dead man narrate? And I was like, well, have you ever seen Sunset Boulevard? <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not the first time it's ever been done. <laughs> you should just take credit for it. It was all me, you know. Uh, Sunset stole from me. And, yeah. you know, uh, 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 of course, the scene uh, the, the, is the Ricky scene where Dad throws him out. That, to me, was... Actually, the hardest scene for me to watch. It's a tough scene. Uh, because he loves his father, he does. But he realizes... He wants to help him, too. He wants to help him, but he also realizes, this is my way out. You know, when his dad says, I would throw you out, he's like, really? Okay, well, I'm going to tell you what you want to hear, because if I can get out of here, I will. That's painful. Of course, it sets up the next scene where... Colonel, uh, the Colonel kisses Kevin Spacey. For that, was that something where you know you you spent a lot of time building to that? Because obviously, you well, in the original, off. in my first draft, there was there was a whole backstory of the Colonel and some soldier that in Vietnam who had had a, a love affair, and 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 the Colonel saw the soldier die in front of his eyes, and um, and one of the things that. And the reason that he was so upset that, that Ricky had opened his cabinet and looked at and shown Jane the Nazi plate was because there was some memorabilia about this guy. But that all got cut because it felt like spoon feeding. But, I mean, the rejection on uh, his face I know. was... <laughs> I know. He's so, so good. He's, oh, my God, just watching him work was, was, such, a, was such a blessing. And, um, you had the yeah, red light on him. You had the rain coming, Conrad Hall. Oh, and that shot where he walks out into the rain and then he just sort of disappears. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. We're just gushing over that awesome scene. Uh, no, I mean, the, setting the, the, that up so that he would walk through the rain and then just sort of completely disappear was took a long time. Uh, of course, the Angela scene with... Uh, with Lester uh, again, a chance where you know when he finally sees her naked, it could have been a sexual scene, but it actually became something completely different. I have to admit, in my first draft, they did have sex. Oh, because it was like there's no moment. Of yeah, he f-ed her. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what was the change? Because obviously that was a pivotal moment. Um, I got a note from. Uh, <laughs> From DreamWorks, and it was it, they were saying like it might be better if perhaps he didn't do this, and, and of course this is one of those moments where you're like, oh my god, I can't believe I wrote that he did. I'm such a perv. <clears throat> um, so I changed it. But it was a sweet moment when he looks at her as a daughter, and he puts the Such wraps around moment. it. It was just it redeems him. He's totally redeemed. Yeah, and yeah. it was uh, it was great, and she was fantastic again. You know you. Surprise twist, you know. They're all so good. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to go out on a very big limb, and I'm going to say, while being shot in the head is a bummer for Lester. Yes. To me, it's a happy ending for him. His last moment of life, he finally found joy and happiness. Kind of yeah. fell in love with his family. Is that yeah. kind of how you see Lester a little? Yeah, totally. He was lost. He, the, you know, he went down this one road. I mean, it's. <clears throat> It's very William Campbell-ish, you know. He, is that the... I hope I get... Joseph Campbell. Joseph um, Hero's Journey. William Campbell. I went to high school with William Campbell. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a hero's journey where he goes off on this... You know, the, the call to adventure is, is Angela. And he thinks, oh, well, that's the adventure is like reconnect, you know, reconnecting with my younger, hedonistic, not having to worry about responsibilities... Self and getting the beautiful girl, but that's not that's that was the call to the adventure, but the adventure was something completely different. And uh, Caroline's moment was amazing, Fall, uh, falling you know, when she realized he's dead, just kind of was that in the script or that was Annette doing? That was Annette her. <laughs> she, you know, uh, when you work with a cast like this, throughout you know, Annette said, I feel like she would just go in his closet and grab his clothes and smell them and, and just break down. and you know, we, we said, yeah, do that. <laughs> <laughs> and really, it's a sign that she's actually in a lot of ways worse off than Lester because she's not going to rebound from that. No. Uh, so to, and actually, the moment Ricky looks into Kevin Spacey's eyes, the dead eyes, also, again, fatty, the smile, that little, mm-hmm. again, great acting. Is there anything that really surprised you? Like something in the performance, like, wow, I didn't see Lester this way, but Kevin kind of did something really special that changed my view of Lester a little. 
Um, I mean, just watching it again tonight, I'm just amazed by how how complicated and how shaded his performance is and how much he makes us love him. Uh, I mean, I always loved him when I was writing it. Uh, but I, I can't remember anything that, uh, that jumps out at me as... I just remember being kind of in awe of him, you know, watching, watching him. And it is a difficult role that. because, you know, we can easily have no sympathy for him if it was the wrong actor. Oh, I mean, with the wrong cast, you could have hated every single person in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so, well, let's, I'm having some fun, but why don't we let you guys get a shot at asking some questions? So, my question is about that theme of look closer. Right. And how that weaves into the, the film and how you see that weaving into the film. Um, you know, actually, that notion of look closer came from the set decorator. Because in Kevin's... Uh, cubicle at work it says look closer and then when they were trying to come up with a tagline for the movie they they chose that so I can't really claim any credit for that (laughs) Um, I mean certainly when I was the very first original genesis of this idea for me was uh, I was living in New York and I was working at this uh, at this big office tower in Times Square and during the Amy Fisher Joey Buttafuoco trial there were people on the sidewalk selling comic books and on one one cover of the comic book there was this sort of like virginal Catholic school school girl Amy Fisher and this leering almost you know bestial Joey Buttafuoco like salivating over her and she was very innocent then you flip it over it's the exact opposite he's like a good suburban husband and she's like this tarted up little nymphette who's seducing him and I remember thinking the truth is somewhere in between that and we will never know what it was you know um, and so I guess I think a, a theme that I like to play around with a lot is that things aren't really what they seem and that this veneer of respectability and, and, and social behavior and norms and that kind of thing, um, it's usually a lot more interesting than that. Um, so I like to dig under that stuff. But the look closer, it was never, I, I was never like, that's the theme of the movie is look closer. Do you see a different theme of the movie? Was there something else that you were thinking of? My process is, is, more, is, is very organic, so a lot of times I don't think in terms of theme or thematic. You know, a lot of times I'll, then I'll look at the finished piece and go, oh, okay, well, this sort of says this, but I'm never really aware of that when I'm working. Thank you. Sure. I'm right behind you. <clears throat> Pass the mic right behind you. Let's start. So this is actually more in the TV realm. Um, okay. But as a showrunner, thinking about your experiences making Six Feet Under and True Blood, which are such cinematic creative shows um, with HBO, can you speak to what, from your perspective, is the ideal relationship between a showrunner and a network? Well, I would say that the ideal relationship is, is when the network wants the showrunner's voice and that they trust the showrunner um, and I, I was very fortunate that I had that experience twice. Um, I think, uh, I mean, it is a business, you know, and there are very few places uh, where they're really interested in finding a new voice or something uh, that people haven't really seen before. Most places want something that resembles something that's already been successful because they're too scared. There's too much money at stake and their jobs are at stake. So uh, the ideal relationship for me is the one that I had with a, with a company that not only trusts you and, and sort of allows you to do what you do, um, but also gives you tremendous support in terms of uh, resources and marketing. Okay. Okay. Um, so uh, I just have a couple questions when it comes to how you write your scripts, because mm-hmm. um, I I want to go into screenwriting and um, just two questions. One uh, I had was, you know, how many times did you revise and how many revisions and versions of the script do you have? Um, we can just start with that one. <laughs> well, my first draft was like 160 pages. So then I took it and went to Laguna and hold myself up in a hotel and cut 40 pages out of it. 
And then as you, you know, I made a lot of revisions during the rehearsal process, uh, during the sort of pre, uh, the, the period before prep with Sam and I when we were just working together and he would have me read the script. Um, I think you just do as many as you, as are called for. Um, sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more. Uh, but I try to always, I, you know, it's, it's, we all have egos. And so a lot of times I'll get a note that I feel like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. What are you talking about? But then I think about it, and maybe the note was a solution to a problem that exists, and the solution that was pitched to me as the note was the stupidest thing I ever heard. But that doesn't mean that this problem doesn't exist and there's another way to fix it. Um, and you, I, I try really hard just to stay open, uh, but to also... A lot of times when I get notes which are like that feel like make it more conventional. When I was working in network TV, I really could have taken every single note that I got and condensed it into two notes. Make everybody nicer (laughs) and articulate the subtext, which are both, you know, death to drama because drama is conflict. And if, if, if everybody's saying exactly what's going on, then where's the where's the richness, you know? Okay, and then the other question, uh, really quick, was just um, there's so many different ways to go at writing a script, and I was wondering like if you went you know beginning to end, or if you jumped around from different parts of the script, um, and kind of how you came at writing it. I personally go from beginning to end. A lot of times, if I'm like on page forty, and then it's like, oh, this should happen, and I need to go back to page twenty and put this thing in, so that it doesn't just come out of nowhere, I'll do it right then. But that's my process. I'm a big believer in that everybody has their own process, and a part of your, your, your job is to figure out what your process is and what works best for you. Um, so that's, that's the way I work, but I wouldn't say that's the way everybody should work. Something I find really striking about uh, the writing I know of yours, uh, including your theater work, um, is how compelling and interesting and uh, authentic your female characters are. And so I'm curious how you are able to climb inside the head of a 16-year-old angsty teenager or uh, uh, Frances Dorman's character McDormand in uh, Six Feet Under and all these different voices. Is it a matter of talking to people, of listening, or how do you get to that uh, female concept? Um, well, there's a big old girl living inside of me. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I've always had very close relationships with women. Um, being gay, I think I look at women differently than perhaps a straight guy might, because I don't look at women as like, oh, object in, in a particular objectifying kind of way. Um, and I just I, I I've always been fascinated by uh, women characters in in literature and movies and you know the men it's usually about who's going to beat the other guy up or who's going to who's going to win through violence which is not that interesting to me um, whereas I think also I'm I'm drawn to women characters because I think it's really hard to be a woman in this culture. I think we live in an extremely misogynist culture, and it's, um, I think it's something that guys don't have to deal with. And so I'm drawn, <clears throat> I'm drawn to women because they have to deal with that. Uh, and it, it's, it's a completely different kind of, of challenge that life, um, life throws at them. It's one of my favorite moments of your pilot, True Blood. Sookie has, I don't know if you're aware, Sookie can read people's minds and knows mm-hmm. the feeling. And hearing the misogyny, mm-hmm. the guys, the way they view her, to me was, you know, painful but fascinating to watch. Uh, well, that's why a character like Angela, she feels power because guys want to have sex with her. But there's something also, you know, it's like, well, hey, there's me, I'm, I'm here. 
It's not, I'm not just this collection of body parts that you can use. And, and that's fascinating to me. And really quick, um, do you think you would ever go back and do theater again? Yeah, I'd love to. I wrote a play uh, eight years ago when we went to New York, and the critics just took a big dump on it. They hated it. <laughs> um, but it was still a great experience, and I, I would do it again because it's different. It's, uh, plays are all about language, you know? So it's a, it's a, different, it's a different muscle. It's a different sort of approach. The, the language, the dialogue is like music, whereas movies and TV are much more visual. We have a, a, a question. Uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for coming. It's such an honor uh, to meet the writer of American Beauty, a classic from my, unfortunately, childhood, <laughs> watching that with my parents growing up. Uh, but I think we can all agree here, a great element of a great screenplay and seeing it come to life is the great soundtrack of oh, this yeah. movie. Uh, and my question to you is, did you have any input on the soundtrack at all, or did you envision any specific songs when you were writing this, and did they actually come to light? I did. I, wrote, uh, I, I write music into scripts. I write, this song is playing on the radio. Um, and Sam ignored every single one of my choices. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think, you know, the, the, the music that he chose is great. It works great. And I also love... The, sound, the score. I think Tom Newman did an uh, unbelievable job. And when, when the movie was being edited, they used a lot of Tom Newman's score from Meet Joe Black, um, which worked really well. And so I had temp love, you know, because I'd seen the cut so many times with the temp score. But then when the, the, um, the original score came for this, I, I just was blown away. So uh, how was the Oscar experience? Winning the Oscars together with you know, all the people who made the movie? And... Well, it's surreal, you know? Because first of all, I've always been... I had, I, I'm, I've always viewed myself as an outsider. Like the guy who... You know, I, my usual Oscar experience was watching at home on TV with friends and getting drunk and throwing balled-up socks at the TV. <laughs> because, you know... Because... You know, Hollywood comes out and they all come out and they congratulate themselves for being so... And it's kind of sickening and disgusting. And so all of a sudden I was there. And I had a flask in my tux pocket that was empty by the time I went up on stage to get my award. It's terrifying. I mean, it's insane. You, you know, it was an out-of-body experience. I was watching from across the room as I went up there and... and you know, and then there's a big monitor that, like, the minute you start talking, it's like 20, 19, 18. <laughs> and here's, you know, Brad Pitt next to me in the bathroom, and it's, it's very, very strange. <laughs> very strange. So after you won, were you able to enjoy watching, you know, the picture win and, you know... Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I love watching everybody else win, but it's just that, that thing of, like... And it brings out the worst in you. It just brings out the worst. Because <laughs> you're sitting there, you know... I've been, I've been nominated for a lot of stuff, too, that I've never won. And, but, and you're there, and, and as you get closer, you start to get, like, you know... You should get a little tense and nervous. And then you're thinking... God, George Clooney was so funny when he got up there. I hope I can think of something funny. <laughs> God, think of something funny. You got to think of something funny. If you oh, it's, it's, it's my category. <laughs> I didn't win. <laughs> so, were you worried about that? What are you going to do if you didn't win? The uh, did they catch you on camera? <laughs> no, I, I mean I don't know, but it's it's it, it is sort of bizarre because ultimately I don't think it has anything to do with the with really anything or, or wanting to be a writer and wanting to express things. And, you know, I always feel embarrassed uh, referring to myself as an artist, but I would, I mean, art is, you know, I, I do aspire to create art, but then you're in the most venal capitalistic <laughs> public relations driven spectacle of weirdness. And everybody there is like, like this, and so it's a it's a really bizarre energy, and um, I would like to say that I enjoyed it, but I didn't. I did not enjoy it at all. It was it was a nightmare. <laughs> but, 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 but,
must be not. I mean, these are also, but the flip side is that these are artists that you respect saying, yeah, you know what, I mean, you but then love you're also, work. you're sitting there and you're like, well, I got this award and Charlie Kaufman didn't. What the? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. And then, uh, and then you have this. I took the statue home, and I I went out to ta- to Target, and I bought a a, a pink fur Barbie coat, <laughs> <laughs> and put it on it because otherwise it just looked too pretentious. <laughs> 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 All right, so we always end our evening with the same question. Uh, can you tell us about uh, a movie theater experience you had growing up, perhaps going with your family, a special movie you got to experience in the theater that kind of maybe influenced you or inspired you? First movie I ever saw was this really horrible movie from the early 60s called My Six Loves, starring Debbie Reynolds. <laughs> and Debbie Reynolds is this movie star who's she's not happy in her life. And the reason she isn't happy is because she needs to be a mother. So she's sort of, she somehow stumbles into adopting six adorable hillbilly children. (laughs) And one of them is fascinated by flushing the toilet. So he flushes the toilet over and over and over again. And this is like a running gag throughout the movie. And I don't know if this is true for you guys, but a lot of times I'll see movies that I loved when I was a kid. And I'm like, that movie sucks. (laughs) I thought it was so good, but uh, but just but the experience of going to see this theater, this movie and being in a theater and watching it on a big screen I'll never forget, you know. And I was I was hooked, you know. And I would I would try to force my family to take us to the movies as much as they possibly could. Uh, well, in honor of you, we will do that movie. My we will bring and, and you could you could actually break it down after and. Uh... <laughs> well, I can tell you what it's about. A woman needs to be a mother. <laughs> she can be a big movie star and have everything in the world, but she's not going to be happy until she has six adorable hillbilly children. And that's going to make a really handsome guy fall in love with her, too, seeing her with those six hillbilly kids. I think that's the perfect way to end. Uh, uh, ironically enough, we've ended most of our screenplays like that. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.